0: there thanks for listening to this podcast i hope that you'll consider in accordance with buddhist tradition all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donation only if you'd like to support my work you'll find a paypal button on dharmapunkswithanxnyc.com Also, please consider my six-week online video course available at learn.tricycle.org, which offers an in-depth exploration of feeling secure in an unstable world. And finally, don't forget to check out my book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for being a friend of Dharma Punk's New York City. Tonight's topic, I'm on my happy, happy, joy, joy tour. Last week it was anxiety. Tonight it's core shame. (laughs) Next week it'll probably be suicidal ideations. Who knows? (laughs) I haven't yet given a talk called distraught and just bummed out, but if maybe I should do that. Thanks, Kristen. Kristen has been volunteering to Uh, Buzz people in. So if you see her jump up, it's because uh, somebody is arriving a little late. Uh, And uh, we need essentially four types of interpersonal experience to feel secure enough in the world that we will be willing to explore our surroundings, take risks, and embrace the opportunities of life. Uh, we need a foundation of safety. So how do we get that foundation of safety? Well, we look for these intuitively. We look for these four qualities. And this, these qualities are first provided to us by caregivers. One is a sense of reliable connection. The sense that there's somebody out there who cares, who's aware of us, who, uh, if we need them for security, that they are available. And this is presented through attunement, just the at first the child's being looked at reliably by a caregiver. Uh, eye contact is the first way we establish that. The second thing we need is the feeling of being seen by others. And by seen, I mean emotionally mirrored, understood. So we're not just connected with someone securely, but that person also is willing to empathetically understand what we're experiencing. If we're sad, they don't brusque us away or uh, look at us with a lack of empathetic concern. Someone who, in essence, mirrors our emotions back to us. That's a nonverbal emotional process where somebody is willing, when we're children... And we're upset to sit, and if we're sad, to show that they know what sadness is like. And that, in essence, naturalizes every single emotion that we have. If we don't get that from a, from caregivers, if a caregiver is incapable of mirroring our emotion because emotions because they're either unavailable or because they are just always depressed or anxious or numbed out, then... The emotions that they don't normalize, we will not be able to incorporate in our sense of self, who we are. They will feel like foreign, unknowable, frightening states of being. The third quality is being comforted and soothed. We want to have the sense that when we are out there exploring the world as toddlers, uh, as children, and then even as we move on into young adult and adult life, We want to have the sense that when things go badly, when we encounter setbacks, when people in the world treat us cruelly, when we feel rejected, that someone, when we're distressed, will be there to essentially create a safe container where our emotions can be held and then through gentle, reassuring both words, gestures, attention, kindness, that we feel a sense that we're, we uh, our distress is mitigated or regulated. And that only comes from somebody being available, uh, not only normalizing that all human beings experience sadness, uh, disappointment, frustration, but that they're willing to take the time to be with us until we feel more confident. And the last quality we need is Uh, encouragement and appreciation when things are going well. We want there to be someone who acknowledges our hard work, our effort, who basically is uh, capable of um, seeing and appreciating all the endeavor that goes into simply showing up for life. So to summarize, again, we need the feeling of being connected reliably for security. We need the sense that somebody is capable of seeing and emotionally mirroring the, the entire spectrum of emotional experience. The, uh, we want to be comforted and soothed when we're distressed, and we also want to be appreciated and acknowledged and encouraged when we put a lot of effort into life where we've accomplished something. You know, those are the four things. And I'm basing this, this assertion on uh, uh, my uh, study, my now me- long-term study in attachment theory and psychology in the work of Mary Main and Alan Shore and Dan Brown and uh, Fanaghi and so forth, all the, uh, the giants in the field. When we're children, we want to explore the world. We want to play. We want to be spontaneous. We want to reach out. But at the same time, that's the age when we're toddlers, around the age of two to three, which is when we start ego development and we start also seeking a little bit more autonomy from the direct physical control of a caregiver Uh, That happens to be the age when many caregivers are understandably exhausted, already spent two years in keeping us alive, and two-year-olds are, I'm sure you know, between two and five are an age where children are most likely to sort of wander off and seek of stimulation, And very often, the caregiver, their desire is not for the child to become exploratory, spontaneous, and embrace every opportunity. The parent uh, is hoping to raise uh, children who are safe and well-behaved. So uh, at this very age where the child starts to develop uh, a sense of uh, ego development, which is still very right hemispheric at that age, is exactly the age where the parent is most likely to become frustrated, exacerbated, stressed. When the child then has um, setbacks, disappointments, or uh, dysregulated emotions and seeks the caregiver, very often the caregiver might be just too tired, too frustrated, too overworked, And might respond at times by withholding attention, scolding, criticism, uh, frustration, you know, uh, a cold stare. This lack of reconnection, if it only happens sporadically, it's of course easy to repair and nothing particularly, there's no long term negative ramifications. But when it becomes an ongoing pattern, where we reach out or seek reconnection with the caregiver after we've uh, trundled off and we don't get it, what happens is what's called core shame develops in the child. Core shame is uh, the child's sense when the caregiver is not available or where the adults who are responsible, suddenly when the child expects it, are not uh, responding or attuned to the child. What happens is the child blames itself, feels there's something wrong with me. Why else is it that these people who are sometimes there are not there? The child has no other explanatory capability. Self-esteem is formed at the very, or the beginnings of self-esteem is formed at the very age where conflict between the toddler and the parents is often at its most intense and in some cases it produces a feeling that then becomes, over time, uh, develops that there's something flawed, broken, uh, uh, damaged about me. There's something about me that's unlovable. In childhood, there's no such thing as quality time. That's a myth created by adults who uh, understandably have to work very hard, and so they like to tell themselves that I might not get to, get to see my children as much as I like, but when I get to see them, I spend a lot of time really attuning and paying attention to them. Unfortunately, in the age of 2 to 5, 2 to 3 is when we, uh, is the age of autonomy and shame. Uh, Three to five is the age of initiative and shame, (laughs) so it's a lot of shame going on there. Uh, uh, The child doesn't understand at that vital age that the parent is busy, not available, and so the child will translate unavailability into, again, I'm not important enough. I'm not consequential. I'm not good enough for my parents to come and spend time with me. Early survival uh, again up until the much later in life is uh, completely dependent upon connection and so absence is always translated as a lack of personal value Uh, and that's again This is where low self-esteem in early life develops. Now, low self-esteem, even without any of these events, even if we have a perfectly reliable caregiving pattern with our parents, core shame can develop in school systems. When the child's around the age of five, six, and beyond, any time where the child feels victimized, bullied, Ganged up on. At that age, children are increasingly informed that they have agency in the world, that they have some sense of control over what happens to them. But very often, at that very core age, is where they start experiencing the pains of social exclusion, rejection, interpersonal bullying, and so forth. And so, when we feel victimized, again, at that age, we start to translate that as, there is something wrong with me. Why else am I being mistreated? Why else am I being ostracized? And so forth. I'm not implying that all forms of shame is bad. There is what the Buddha called uh, appropriate shame, which is in Pali Semwega, and Samwego simply means that awful feeling in your gut when we do something harms somebody else. Where we mistreat someone or when we just think only of ourselves or when a slip of the tongue, we accidentally wound someone or where we, uh, we act needlessly aggressively due to stress. We all have these times where we make mistakes. Due to the social circuits in the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, which Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg have shown we all have, they trigger gut feelings of emotional pain when we do something that's antisocial, that harms other people. The Buddha said to his son, Rahula, when you act in ways that cause harm, reveal it to the wise, spiritual friend, and once you've acknowledged it, just don't do it again. That's it. But notice in this, and this is the most uh, crucial thing to notice, at no point does the Buddha say to his son Rahula, you're a bad person. That was, you are, a f- you, you are selfish, you are, are harmful. He makes absolutely no globalizing statement about his child. He simply says, feel, if if you feel ashamed of an action that causes harm, acknowledge it, don't do it again, that's it. Okay? So there's no sense of turning any action into a sense of there's something wrong with me. Now this brings us directly to what unskillful shame or core shame is. Core shame is whenever we take any experience and we don't just note the experience, but we turn that experience into a judgment or a verdict against ourself, our identity, our core. It creates a sense that I am defective, I am worthless. There's something wrong with me. There's something unlovable with, about me. I am beyond redemption, because of course there really isn't. Oh, because of course there really isn't any thing that is inherently broken about us, we wind up with what's called neurotic anxiety and call shame, which is this sense that there's something in me that's unlovable. I don't know what it is, but I've got to be careful around other people because if I relax and if I simply disclose my emotions and act spontaneously and take risks and state my needs in relationships, other people will find me unlovable, reject me, and want, and will want to have nothing to do with me. Core shame essentially isolates us, makes us feel that we can't relax and take risks with other people. Again, if we notice from the very beginning when I talked about, to take risks in the world we need to feel the sense that we are prioritized by other by another, by other people. We need to feel seen, emotionally understood, soothed, and we need to feel encouraged. If we don't feel that, or if at a crucial time in our life, through peers, or family systems, or one caregiver, then we wind up with this feeling, there's something wrong with me, and we won't want to take risks in our life. We'll be frightened of growth, we'll be frightened of being spontaneous, we'll be frightened of uh, sticking our neck out. The Buddha says, when one believes their self is constant and permanent, it creates a tangled thicket of thoughts which results invariably in sorrow, distress, lamentation, and despair. In other words, once we start building up stories about who I am, especially after we have negative experiences, because the brain has negativity bias, eventually what happens is we start pinpointing the sense that there's something wrong with me. And that's something I don't know what it is. It's sort of like a signifier without a signified, as it were. It's this sense that somewhere in me there's something unlovable. And I can't be unguarded and relaxed and uh, too comfortable around others. What about patterns or tendencies? Isn't it okay to feel, to judge when there's something that I repeatedly do uh, that's unskillful or harmful? Doesn't that mean it's not just the actions, but there's something about myself I should address? And the answer is no. <laughs> uh, when we have compulsive behaviors, all that's going on is that there's a degree of unconscious stress or painful emotions that are beginning to surface and it's triggering what's called a signal anxiety. And the signal anxiety is the awareness that we're beginning to feel sad, lonely, frustrated, angry, whatever emotional experience we don't tolerate very well. And then, uh, as a result, we act out a compulsive behavior. So some people, when they come home, they're alone, it's been a tiring day, they feel lonely, there's no one there to console them, they immediately eat, even though they're not hungry, or they might shop, even though they don't need anything, or they might compulsively turn on Netflix or social media as a way to essentially numb the building internal discomfort And the way to work with that is not to add shame into the mix or a sense that there's something wrong with me. That actually is exactly what we don't want to do. What we want to do is insert a pause before we act out the compulsive behavior, whether it's eating or shopping or numbing with social media or Netflix or whatever. We simply say, okay, I'll... Allow myself to do this, but first I'm going to spend a minute just reconnecting with whatever is going on internally that's making Netflix seem so desirable right now. What is it that's, what would I feel if I didn't have anything to eat right now? I want to connect with that. And this is called in certain therapies, it's called distress tolerance. It's essentially rather than giving into a compulsive behavior to numb or to repress unconscious, painful, emotional state, what we're actually doing is we're reconnecting with these these parts of ourselves that we've abandoned and suppressed, and we're actually learning to be with the emotional discomfort so that we won't have to be driven to compulsive behaviors all the time in our life. Low self-esteem is associated with depression, self-blame, conflict avoidance, uh, in my work in counseling, I see very often people will needlessly apologize when they haven't done anything wrong. Uh, they, there's a strong tendency towards perfectionism, which, in a sense, is a, an excuse not to take risks, not to be creatively adventurous. Again, when you feel there's something self defective wrong with you, then of course you're going to be wary that truth being seen by others. And where else would that truth be seen but when you're being creative or spontaneous or disclosing your emotions or or being relaxing? It creates this walling off, this retreat, conflict avoidance, risk aversion. We won't state our needs in relationships because we're sure that our needs will be rejected because our needs in some way become representative of that thing that I believe is wrong with me. Again, I still don't know what it is, but if it's going to come out, it's either going to come out creatively, spontaneously, in my emotions, or in my needs that I'm looking for in a relationship. So in my counseling work, I really know when someone is (laughs) progressing when they are capable of... uh, embracing opportunities that in the past they would have avoided, when they're willing to go through difficult conflictual conversations that they would have tried to skirt around, when they're willing to face fear or something that makes them anxious. There is no other greater, for me, sign of progress than when somebody says, literally today, I broke up with them, but I didn't use, you know, a message. I actually called them up, or I, you know, I went in to my roommate, and I said, you know what, pick up the goddamn towels, you know, or whatever. (laughs) There's no sign that people are overcoming uh, core shame and low self-esteem, because in order to take risks you have to believe in some way there are people in your life that will help you process any difficult emotions that might arise in the conflict. And in order to feel that there are people in your life, you have to feel through that experience that you're not all bad, that there's something about you that's lovable, that people care about. It's always alleviated, one, through connecting, with people that will not reduplicate or recreate the abandonments of childhood or our early schoolyard experiences. Of course, one of the problems is that people who have a sense of core shame tend to choose as romantic partners people who are abandoning because love in childhood was defined as you don't get to be with this person reliably or the person that you most want to have kindness and understanding isn't always going to give it to you, or is unpredictable, or is very often unavailable. That defines what love is, if that's what you experience, and that's what you'll choose for a partner. Until, in some uh, corrective emotional experience, you find a support group, a good therapist, someone who will help heal those wounds. Now, fortunately, not all of the work has to be done relationally. It can also be done in meditation. The Buddha had a set of practices called the Brahma-Viharas. The Brahma-Viharas are a set of divine attitudes, and they're very interesting in the light of this conversation. The Brahmaviharas, I'm going to list them really quickly, the ones that we'll be working with, and I'm going to tell you then why I think they're so interesting. The first Brahmavihara is metta, and it's essentially greeting all experience, other people, or internal emotions and feelings and needs with unconditional friendliness and awareness. The second Brahma-vihara is compassion. It is when we are suffering or when another being is suffering, paying attention, not judging, not distancing ourselves, being available to our suffering, being, not being impatient with ourselves, not judging ourselves, being available and kind with ourselves. The third Brahma-vihara is appreciation, seeing and acknowledging when things are going well in others, and acknowledging our own hard efforts and our own uh, endeavors. The fourth is equanimity. We're not going to be working with the fourth. We're just going to be working with the first three. And the reason why I think the first three Brahma Viharas are so interesting in the light of this conversation is that they provide exactly... The same experiences I said at the beginning, we needed as children to feel secure and loved and to develop a positive sense of self. Seen, emotionally understood, we needed to be soothed when we were suffering, and we needed to have appreciation and encouragement for all of our hard effort. What are the brahma-viharas? Seeing, unconditionally welcoming, soothing with compassion, and appreciating our hard effort. So we're going to do a meditation, and we're going to be focusing on reconnecting with what uh, some therapists and I sometimes call the inner child. It's essentially that wounded part of ourselves that felt abandoned, unseen, unappreciated, um, And it's that part of ourselves that holds the wounded self-esteem, the sense of shame. So we're going to be in our meditation addressing that child and giving that inner child everything it needed but didn't always get when we were very young. So I hope that made some sense. Uh, I thank you for listening and now we're actually going to do the practice. So find a really comfortable seated position and closing the eyes, especially in this meditation because it's raining outside and boy, is that the time where we all like to doze off. Creates a beautiful ambient white noise sound exactly like the setting on my iPhone I fall asleep to at night, so take a moment to gently tilt your head up like you're looking at a, let's say a 20 story tall building not a skyscraper but a tallish building, and you're looking at the penthouse, so your chin lifts and the back of and your head tilts slightly, and that keeps your head from slouching in front of your chest, and generally just that is enough to keep us from dozing off. So see if you can truly arrive in this moment <coughs> by which I mean. Bring to mind a place, a location that you cherish, a place you look forward to, maybe a spot on a secluded beach, or a hammock in the mountains, A favorite location, a park, a seat by a river. And when you get there, and you settle into your seat, the first thing you might feel is submerging yourself into the sensations that are present. So if you were at the beach, you'd feel the sun caressing your skin, sinking into the sand, the sound of the waves ebbing, flowing, crashing and retreating from shore. And when we reach that special place, we feel the body relaxing and softening into the world around us. Sinking into a seat, the shoulders dropping away from the ears, the chest opening up, The micro-muscles around the eyes relaxing as well as the forehead. If there's any clenching in the jaw, the jaw releases. The belly, the abdominal muscles release so there's no longer any contraction or armoring or tightness. There's just this welcoming of life, the body embraces this moment. And when the body starts doing that, then the next quality that follows is the mind also releases into the present. It puts aside its tendency to try to rush to another appointment or destination. The sense of being in a clock or being in an hour chunk of time and needing to be somewhere else in another hour chunk of time is completely abandoned. There's a sense of the moment becomes sacred. There's no confines. There's no time limit. And likewise, the mind lets go of any desire to be anywhere else. It doesn't feel attracted to any lingering thoughts about previous events from the day or the week and there's a real even a sense of aversion towards any planning about the future. It's like that first day on a vacation where the last thing you want to think about is when you'll have to travel home. So you've got nothing to do, nowhere to go, and especially There's no one to please or take care of. You've reached a destination where you can fully relax. And so let's fully relax into what's available to us right now. There's the sound of the rain and cars drifting up from the Bowery creating a constant white noise with bursts of percussive horns. Don't visualize what creates the sounds or even don't visualize the street below. Just listen to the sound like it's a recording almost from another planet, you have no idea what anything looks like that's creating these sounds. You can also be aware of the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Not any images your mind is creating, but just the lights that flicker. There's the feeling of making contact with the ground and the clothes on your body. And most apparent internally is the sensation of the body breathing in and out. If you were in a boat, it would be the gentle lift and receding of the currents. See if you can find During the in-breath, a sensation in the lower body, and as you breathe in, follow the energy moving up through the body. So if you start, for instance, with the sit bones or the contact with the ground, as you breathe in, feel a sense of awareness, flooding up through the body, up through the torso, the neck, into the head, bringing light and awareness. And then as you breathe out, relaxing, releasing through the eyes, releasing any tension in the face, releasing any tension in the neck, the shoulders, the chest, the belly. So each in-breath is bringing awareness and life and energy and each out-breath is releasing any tension. And just see for a while as we sit in quiet, can you simply truly arrive in your life in this moment without any... inclination at all that there's somewhere else you should be. Don't abandon your life. Honor it. And of course, no meditation is complete without the array of mental movies known as thoughts or memories or fantasies that will try to snare you. And when they do, don't react with any frustration or impatience. It's totally normal. Understandable. Natural. Simply release back into the present. You don't have to go anywhere. The present is all around you. Generally, the mental movies will be up in the head. So just relax back down into your body and the sounds around you and the the contact sensations. Just release back down into the present. You can think of your meditation as like a game where The goal is to stay present as long as you can and simply to notice and release whenever you get hooked by a thought, a memory, or a fantasy. Okay, so at this time you can just allow the sensations of the present, like the rain and the breath and the lights behind closed eyelids and everything else to just be released. They're still present, but you're not fully holding them in the foreground of your awareness. And I'd like you now to visualize, and it's important in this practice to not in any way overthink it. Just go with whatever your mind spontaneously pre- presents in this practice. So don't judge or criticize or try to get it right. Just allow your mind to provide, if you can visualize in your mind, some people can't, but if you can to provide an image of yourself at a time that you associate with loneliness, disconnection, being separated from someone you love. It could be at any age that comes up, but if it's younger that could be helpful. If you can't visualize yourself at this time, just feel, see if you can create that sense of what it's like to miss connection, attachment, to feel disconnected and lonely. And then I'd like you to drop into this experience as a message from your now adult mind to the wounded part of yourself that's at times felt abandoned, not cared for, not known by others. I see you, I'm here. I won't go away, I'll stay with you. Literally tell yourself what you would have, as a child, wanted to hear from a parent. I see you. I'm not going away. I'll stay with you. Whatever you feel is okay. Whatever you feel is okay. There's no, there are no wrong feelings, no wrong emotions, no wrong needs. Just keep dropping into your internal experience like you're dropping a penny into a well. Just drop really sincerely meant simple messages, I care. I see you. I won't abandon you. I'll take care of you. See if you can get in touch with any unmet needs that haven't been seen or appreciated by anyone else. What is it that you need? It's okay. Now, I'd like you to bring to mind another image of a time in life where you felt overwhelmed, distressed, the most frightened, vulnerable. Can you either see yourself, or feel that, what would that child need to hear? I care about you. I care about your suffering. It's hard. I understand that. You have every right to feel sad, or angry, or scared, or all of those There's nothing wrong with the way you feel. I'll stay with you. I care about your pain. And lastly, bring an image to mind of yourself being playful and free and unconstrained and that part of you that wanted to embrace and be free and break through any inhibitions, that part of you that yearns to just be, to dance in life, And what does this part of you need to hear? Needs to hear you're wonderful. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to explore. I appreciate. All that you've done to take risks and embrace life. So, in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, just open your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you. And the point is to integrate sight into this awareness that has incorporated and touched into your internal experience, how you feel, your mood the sensations of the body. So don't allow sight to storm into awareness and push all of this internal sensations into the background. See if you can balance awareness so you know what's going on around you and, when you, and knowing what's going on inside of you.